You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Folks, welcome to a special episode of the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this special episode, I am talking to Aaron Schulman, the author of The Age of Disenchantments, the epic story of Spain's most notorious literary family, and the long shadow of the Spanish Civil War. He is going around the country talking about his book and also showing a great movie called El Disencanto, The Disenchantment. I will have links over to Aaron's website so you can find out where that is showing and where you can see him selling his book. Highly recommended for both of those things. Definitely check it out. And now, enjoy this interview. This is not an easy subject to talk about. There's a lot of ins and outs and all these things, so I'm hoping you can kind of help me unravel this whole thing. Where did it start? What got you interested in this, to me, and and this is because I'm a stupid American, to me, this obscure family from Spain? Living in Madrid in 2012 with my wife, who's Spanish, and we'd been there about three years, and I had made a good group of friends and who knew that I was, you know, they knew I was, you know, a, a writer, that I loved movies. And so my friend Javi, who's a huge film buff, invited us over to his apartment one night. And he just said, you know, there's this crazy documentary from the 70s. I don't want to tell you much more, but it's about a, a writer, a poet named Leopoldo Panero and his family, and they're really eccentric, and it's a wild film. So we went over and watched it, and the first time I saw it, I didn't understand everything because they speak so fast, and, and there's a lot of cultural references. But I remember just kind of being in a state of shock and wonderment at how strange and wonderful these people were. And I was reading a lot of the writer, uh, Roberto Bolaño at the time, a Chilean writer who writes a lot about fascism and, and kind of crazy poets and strange literary lives. And I felt like this family was sort of an unwritten chapter by Roberto Bolaño or a, a sort of reality had written a Bolaño novel. And as I would end up finding out, Bolaño had fictionalized members of the family in his novels, so I wasn't far off in seeing that. And I learned when I spoke to a friend of Bolaño's, he told me that they were very inspired by the poetry of one of the sons. So I, I saw this film, and yeah, as you know, as you mentioned, it's it's dense in this contextually, historically, literarily. So it takes some unraveling and and there's a lot of context to be able to understand it but so i but i just felt like there was something really special here so i started doing more research ended up interviewing the director and you know years later this ended up turning into my book about the family the age of disenchantments which just came out but it really all started with the film and and wanting to understand and one of the things i found out was this film is it's the it really is the most famous Spanish documentary. It came out in 1976 and became a phenomenon, both 
making people fall in love with it like I did or being amazed and just fascinated. And then it, it scandalized a lot of other people because of when it came out and in the way it was sort of read culturally, which we can get into. So it's a really classic piece of Spanish cinema and I would just say world documentary but it's never been released in the US so I I bought the rights to it and I'm screening it in several venues around the country this this spring summer and fall. The name of the film is El Disencanto translates as what the disenchantment and that's I think the best translation you can also say unhappiness or something like that but I think since there's a that poetic resonance of the disenchantment uh, I think works very well. And then someone pointed out to me recently that there's the idea of enchantment and disenchantment that relates sort of to fairy tales and being trapped that someone re- someone was saying that that made them think of being trapped in a dictatorship and the idea of being sort of trapped and enchanted and then you become disenchanted, although that flips flips the meaning because the word disenchantment actually became a a buzzword in Spain in the seventies because of this movie, as Spain was transitioning to democracy, which was a very challenging process with a lot of disenchantment with democracy and the process, the, the word, you know, I think it started having more to do in the context of the fi- the film when it came out and the family, the disenchantment with their family, with the past, with the dictatorship. And then the meaning of it changed and came to relate more to the way that people were feeling about the arrival of democracy in Spain after the Franco dictatorship. I guess this film kind of reminds me of like the Spanish version of like Grey Gardens or something, where the veil is pulled back on this very unusual family, and there's political ties happening here. And it just, you sit there with your mouth open, looking at these people and just being amazed that they can open up as much as they did. <laughs> right, right. That's, that's really what I think, especially with so... Uh, made it such a sensation when it came out is, you know, they were, uh, they were coming out of a dictatorship in which people really couldn't share their true feelings, say the truth about things. And then this family, who, the funny thing is they really felt that they had censored themselves in some ways because it was made in 1974 and 1975 when Franco was still alive. And so the one of the sons called the film the decaffeinated version of them because they thought they were actually self-censoring, whereas most people were completely, you know, bowled over by the things these were saying, the, the things the, the family was saying. Interestingly, the, the novelist Javier Marias, who's one of probably Spain's most famous novelists internationally, he was good friends with the family growing up. And he said that when he saw the movie in the theater, he felt like it was like he was sitting in their living room with them as they were all talking, except maybe they were being a little more controlled. But I, sh- I guess I should maybe just for the listeners of the podcast give a, give the cast kind of that we have here is we we have Leopoldo Paneda was the father of the family. He was a communist poet in the 1930s, friends with Garcia Lorca, Pablo Neruda, just this big, really amazing group of poets, you know, pretty much all on the left who were in Madrid before the Spanish Civil War, then the Spanish Civil War happened and it either killed or scattered into exile or imprisoned this group. And Leopoldo Panero ended up going on a strange rightward journey of being a communist poet. And then by the end of the war, he was writing fascist poetry because he had joined Franco's army at first in order to survive. And then it seems that he ended up either out of pragmatism or some change in 
political spirit uh, embraced that fascism, Spanish fascism. And part of it was he was almost executed at the outbreak of the war for being leftist. So maybe after that experience, he decided, all right, I'm going. And then he became the sort of unofficial poet laureate for the Franco dictatorship over the years and had jobs uh, working for the government in, in a cultural context of putting together different art shows, literary magazines, but sponsored by the government. So he died 12 years before the documentary happened. And he was also a drinker. He was an adulterer and he wasn't the worst father at that time for what fathers were, but certainly not the best. So then you have the family, uh, the mother and the three sons come together 12 years after his death. And they basically say all the things you're not supposed to say that they bring out all the dirty laundry. And so you have his wife, Felicidad Blanc, who was a very intelligent, beautiful woman who also had aspirations to be a writer, but those got crushed by just the patriarchal culture by being, she was converted into the muse of her husband rather than, you know, a writer herself, although she did publish some short stories. And so I think the film was an opportunity for her to take control of the narrative. And that's really what you see the film is of the family battling to get their stories told. And then you had the three sons who were all writers. You had the, the oldest one, Juan Luis, who, Maybe he was taking after his father a little bit, trying to assume that role of the dignified poet, although he wasn't, he was also on the left side of this political spectrum. Then you had the middle brother, Leopoldo Mario, Maria, who is a mad genius type poet who became well known very young and then was in uh, prisons for political dissidents and then in, in insane asylums for the majority of his life. And then the third son, Michi, who was the one sort of pulling the strings behind the scenes of the documentary, who was a famous uh, womanizer and very charismatic. And he was a film critic, but he was sort of the writer without a book. He was better at criticizing other people's writing than doing his own writing. So that's the, the, the outlay of the family. And they're just all hyper literary they speak very well and you know they also they don't hold back so as you were saying you see these people saying saying everything and battling it out and i think they're battling for the narrative of their family and so then in the director of the movie jaime chowdy who I, I got to know very well while researching my book he had seen gray gardens at Cannes the the year before or while while he was making the film and it, and it clearly had a big influence on it I was also reminded a little bit of uh, R. Crumb and his family, especially, I guess it was the three brothers and the varying degrees of sanity versus insanity with them as well. And because I don't remember seeing much of Leopoldo Maria in the film. There's a tension around him because in the first 45 minutes of the film, they're talking about how he isn't appearing in the film because for about a year, he didn't want to appear on it, in it. And then they finally convinced him. And then when he does appear, he's like burns everything down and attacks his mother and has all these incredibly epigrammatic quotes that are so memorable. These things he says, like in childhood, you thrive. And after that you survive. And prison is a, the maternal womb and it is the only place where friendships are possible. And he's just throwing out these incredible lines that really turned him into a legend. But yeah, you do have that Karamazov trope of the three brothers. And it's interesting because yeah, you know, the movie really, I think, has been isolated in the sense that it hasn't influenced world cinema to the extent it could have. But I think it taps into such universal things 
you know, about family, about the past, about rivalry that you end up. I've seen a number of films where I feel like it's a sibling of that film or part of some tradition, although I, I don't think the filmmakers ever saw it. I don't know if you've seen the, that movie, The Wolf Pack, a strange documentary about this family in New York that with a number, I don't know how many siblings, but they they aren't really allowed to leave their apartment. Have you seen that? I've heard of it. I haven't watched it yet. Oh, it's pretty, it's really fascinating. And I think there's some real echoes between it and El Desencanto about a strange family story. And so it's, I kind of see this line going from Grey Gardens and Desencanto to Wolfpack. And I'm sure there's, I'm always on the lookout for other strange documentaries. And yeah, definitely the, you know, the crumb documentary too. Well, tell me a little bit more about the making of it. What was Jaime able to shed his light on to? The producer who produced the film, Elias Kerejeta, who it, I'm guessing some of your listeners will know the um, the Spirit of the Beehive, which is one of the most famous movies from Spanish cinema. He was a producer for that and pretty much the producer for all of the great films of, of that era. So he once said that, you know, the making of the film was a better or even even better movie than the, the film itself. What I really think he means is there were so many crisis crises during the making. I mean, they were all they were all drinking during it. They would drink during the filming, the family. And then afterwards, the the crew and the director, Jaime, would would drink together and they would get in fights. I mean, the, the Panero family was very I think they're people who thrive in conflict. And so. There was it was just very contentious throughout in the family ended up, you know, fighting on camera and Michi is is baiting his other brothers or specifically his brother Juan Luis. And and so you see that play out on camera. And I know that from what Jaime told me that there was a point where the Banados felt that they had been kind of tricked into saying too much. And they felt like we've been, even though they got off clearly on being exhibitionist and, and transgressive, there was a point where they felt like we thought we were using you to help give us some notoriety by making this film. And then they started to feel like, are, oh, wait, are we being used? And we said more. And the, the interesting thing is there was two agreements that were made from the start of the film. And that was that the family members wouldn't know what the other family members said when they were interviewed alone. And then the other part, I guess you could say of the, the pact of the making was that if any family member, every family member had veto, veto power to, to cancel the film from being released. And even after the final product, which, you know, even you're, even today you're, you know, in our Kardashian universe, you know, you can, you still see it and say, wow, this is pretty, weird stuff but if you think about spain in the 1970s you were coming out of the franco dictatorship pretty explosive material they're talking about alcoholism there's some allusions to incest even though there wasn't incest in the family there's this sort of literary playing with the idea of incest there's talk about adultery there's things that were very very scandalous at the time and there was something certainly exhibitionistic in them deciding to go ahead with it and waving their veto power but also something brave and saying you know what we made this crazy artifact and we're just going to put it out there and and see what happens the movie looks so good and it doesn't seem to be shot like i reckon a regular documentary is shot it looks like he had a multi-camera setup yeah he did so the the film started it was just going to be a 20 minute uh short and then the director showed get a hit of the the cut of 20 minutes and it sort of looked like 20 minutes of 
a longer film and the rest was missing. So Kirehita thought it was sort of like a crazy idea, but he said, go ahead, all right, make a feature. And so when he went back uh, to, to finish making it, he had, he had another camera, so they were able to do multiple angles on the on the same scene. And I think that definitely for some of the conversations it creates that are more argumentative, it creates a great, great sense of a sort of kinetic, kinetic sense of ping ponging back and forth as they argue. Jaime Chavarri, the director, he wasn't a documentarian and I don't think he ever made another documentary. He had made one small feature and the rest of his career, he made a lot of well-regarded features. So I think it's almost like someone who's generally a novelist going to not writing nonfiction, they're going to write a, a more novelistic fashion. So I think as a non-documentarian, he brought a, a more a, a more fictive uh, lens to his directing. Yeah, I can't say that I'm familiar with his work other than I know he did the screenplay for Vampiros Lesbos, which is one of the most famous films around. <laughs> right. Yeah, he did. It's interesting because when I talked to I talked to him about his career and he, I said, you know, and uh, I don't know what we were talking about, but I said something like, oh, you know, an auteur like you. And he th- he's like, oh, so you're one of the people who thinks I'm an auteur. And I think that's because he's done different jobs for hire. And so that's actually that was his theory or so I can't remember if it was him or someone else's theory about why this Encanto never ended up as part of the Criterion collection because his career was some some were jobs for hire like and other were were screenplays that he wrote but he didn't necessarily necessarily have a clear sort of auteur vision that went throughout his career so yeah you it's hard it's hard to kind of categorize him or or put him in uh, you know in a kind of helpful box to say this was who he was uh, artistically speaking so how do you go from watching the movie in 2012 to writing a nearly 500-page book about this entire family? It happened gradually, and I didn't re- realize what was happening as it happened because it was over a number of years. So I, as soon as I saw the film, I think the next day I spent the whole day Googling and researching, and maybe even that same day I sent a pitch to the Believer magazine, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but a really great arts, culture, literature magazine. And pretty much I knew the only place that I would have a chance of them, uh, you know, American publication writing, letting me write about an obscure Spanish uh, cult documentary. Uh, And that's what's so great about them is they completely went for it. So I wrote a 6,000 word piece about the essay, which, you know, that's pretty long. That's, I don't know how many, maybe that's 15 double space pages. I'm not sure, but a long, a long piece. And for that, I interviewed the director. I interviewed one of the, one of the biographer or the biographer of one of the sons and a couple other people. And then I was just interested in the family in a non-professional way. And just, I got obsessed with them because I thought they were such interesting characters. And so over the next couple of years, I read their memoirs. I read a lot of their poetry. And my wife and I actually ended up moving to L.A. because the economic crisis was so bad in Spain at the time. Having the option to move to since I'm American and her green card came through, you know, it just it was the right choice for us. I just still stayed interested in the family. And then I started doing work, uh, doing ghostwriting nonfiction books with scientists, kind of TED Talk type guys. So I learned a lot about how the nonfiction market works for books. So then I realized, you know, I'm going to write a book proposal, 70 or so pages 
of what the book would be and see if I could interest a publisher uh, in that. And so when I decided I did that, we went, I was going to do that. We went and spent uh, six weeks in Spain and I found a lot of archives with documents, letters. I started interviewing a lot more people and I started building this, basically this huge pile of raw material related to the family documents, testimonies, their poetry and memoirs. And then there was a whole subgenre of memoirs about by people who knew the, the Panedo family. And so I started looking at all of that and figuring out how would I shape that into a book. And luckily I found a publisher echo, which is a, an imprint of heck of uh, Harper Collins. And they were, they were amazing enough to say, all right, we, we want this book about this family that this a Spanish literary family that no one in the U S knows anything about. And so then I spent, uh, about yeah, three and a half years writing and researching it, and it came out in in March of this year, two thousand nineteen. So that's the that's the journey, and lots of you know strange strange experiences along the way to get there. People that I met, and uh, and stories, and and rumors, and and facts and fictions that I had to weed through. It must have been so difficult for people even in Spain to be like, "What does this American want to know about this yeah. family?" <laughs> It was actually, I think that was, that opened so many doors for me. They were just like, this is so weird that you're so into this and that people in the U.S., like a publisher would be interested in this, that people were really so open to me. I think they were, my, you know, my wife sometimes would say like, what? We'd try to theorize about why people, because people literally opened their doors to me, you know, a total stranger and they would tell me very personal things, share memories, or we would drink, you know, whiskey until 2 a.m. in some cases. And it was just incredible the way people opened it, opened themselves to me. And I think it was partly just because maybe I was just pa- really genuinely passionately interested in this. And then I think maybe that, yeah, the, the, just the weirdness of this, you know, American guy, and, you know, I'm, I'm in my thirties and look on the younger side. So sometimes people would expect to, some sort of like gray haired scholar to show up and then I'd, I'd show up and that throw them off, but maybe even cause them to open up even more. And then I should also give credit, you know, there's a long tradition of English language, British and American historians writing some very good books about uh, Spain and especially Spanish literary culture, like the biographer of Lorca is is Ian Gibson uh, from the UK, and one person actually told me I, I didn't want to I didn't really want to talk to you, but I respect Ian Gibson so much. I thought uh, that I should give it a chance. So yeah, I can't take all the credit. <laughs> so Franco died November 20, nineteen seventy five. So what's the mean age of the people that you're talking to? Yeah, so I'm talking to people mostly who were in their late twenties. Around that time, yeah, twenties and thirties. So, yeah, I, I most people I'm talking to are in, the, I would say, in their sixties to, yeah, sixties and seventies mostly. And then you know there were different people from different periods of the, the you know, the family's life. You know, when they were, you know, the last sons were alive. You know, they or they died in 2013 and 2014. So people who know there was a lot of younger people who knew them then that I interviewed. But yeah, of that generation, you could think of it as a disencanto generation. They were mostly in their, their sixties and seventies. And, and, you know, a lot of these people had, have had really interesting careers too, as, uh, as, as writers and people art gallerists and cause you know, in Madrid, it's a very small world in, of the arts in which, I mean, maybe like, maybe like New York city a little bit, but 
but I think more familial. Everyone really knows each other, and it's literally familial in the sense of you know the famous novelist Javier Marias, his cousin who is Ricardo Franco, who is a famous in Spain, a famous film film director. So they were all some of them were really actually related, and then Ricardo Franco, the Javier Marias' brother, actually made there was a sequel, a follow up documentary to El Desencanto made about 20 years later, which is called uh, After So Many Years. So it's kind of a where are they now, and it's a pretty depressing where where are they now. I can't even imagine. Are you going to show that as well when you tour this around? No, I haven't been I haven't been able to figure out where the who has the rights for that. That's been trickier of dealing figuring out the the producer and the and all of that. I know you said you were ghostwriting for some scientific authors and you also talked about the piece that you wrote about this film. What are some of the other things that you would normally write? I've been a fiction and nonfiction writer, so I was actually working on a novel which I never ended up pu- publishing, but I've um you know, I've always been interested in just literature and the arts. And then as I got more interested in, the, in nonfiction, I've been interested in the ways sort of politics and art play out or social justice or social protest and, and art. So that that's what I was – that's where my interest lies. It, at the time that I was discovered the Banero family, I was writing a lot about the economic crisis uh, in Spain, which, you know, there was a lot of stuff that was the precursor to the Occupy movement that was happening in Spain. It was called the Quince M, the the 15th of May movement, uh, named after this, uh, this huge, I guess, sort of confluence of, of forces that just spontaneously erupted kind of like Occupy Wall Street. So for example, I had written a long piece for the Los Angeles Review of Books about this group of activists who took over an abandoned hotel, and it became a sort of utopian experiment of living together and supporting each other when, when the state or the economy is failing you. And so that was, that was a really interesting piece. I was, when we were living in Madrid, I interviewed a, a lot of people who had been involved in it. And then the police ended up, you know, raiding the building and kicking them out. But that, those were the types of pieces I, I was, and then I would do book reviews and, and different types of work. So a lot of different, my interest in history and literature and in the role of art in, in life, all of that, came together in my book, The Age of Disenchantments, about the Pinedo family, and it just felt like a project that was made for me. So have you already started doing these screenings of the film? No. So it's really exciting. So let's see. You and I are speaking today on April 8th, and this Saturday on April 13th, I'm doing the first screening, which you you can think of the theatrical debut of this classic on Saturday at Film Forum in New York City. Yeah, so I'm really excited to see, you know, what the what the response to it will be. I'm giving a little introduction and we're doing a one-time special screening and then and then I'm from there I'm going to let's see I'm doing a screening in Washington DC with the Spanish embassy and then I'll be going back up to Philly doing a screening at the Roxy in Philadelphia and then at a cool project it's kind of I think a distillery and movie theater in Lancaster, Pennsylvania called Zotrope. And then I'm, then it's screening in different art centers and museums without me around the country. And then I'm hopefully setting up some West coast screenings in, in May and June. There's a lot going on and hopefully more stuff will be coming together, but I'm just an evangelist for the movie. And, and I'm 
persistent and annoying enough that some people have finally responded to my emails and decided to go for it. But that's because they've watched the film and realized it's a pretty, it's a pretty special thing. Well, I don't want people to get the wrong impression that your book is about the movie because it's, I can't say it's only a small portion because there is a, a good chunk to it, but there's so much more. There's so much more about this family and it plays against, yeah, the whole history of Franco and all this stuff. Things that we probably don't think about today when we think about Spain because it's just been such a, you know, happy go lucky. Let's go to Barcelona kind of a thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, they've, they've sold themselves very well. They've, they've marketed themselves very well. And I think, and so we, Americans definitely romanticize that and we go there for the culture, the beaches, the food, the, the art museums, and there's obviously a lot more there. Right. Yeah. We're not going to talk about the Basque separatists or the Castilian separatists or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> or the Catalonians, I should say. But yeah, it is, it's a fascinating, fascinating read. And the, it plays so well with the movie. I think that is a really good idea that you're showing these both together because it just opens up that whole world that your book is able to show and able to encapsulate so well. Yeah. You know, and I do think sometimes when I, talk about the book i focus too much on the movie just because in a certain sense of this encanto is if you're thinking dramatic arc it's the climax of the story because it's sort of the big explosion of them and their fame and their cultural impact and then they sort of you know they fade in sometimes sad ways during those last those years after and so it was a culminating point but yeah the i mean the book is 400 pages of story about the family and i would say the film is maybe and its effect is maybe 60 pages. So, yeah, I mean, what I really thought, you know, the the idea or the family in a certain sense, their life is a door into the 20th century in Spain, the, that the whole history of the country. So they're they're as singular as they are. And I don't try, I don't want to turn them into metaphors of, you know, they represent Spain. They're an amazing doorway that really allowed me to tell the story of the country because of, you know, the way their lives changed because of the Spanish Civil War, because of the dictatorship, because of the transition to democracy. And so that was really a privilege and uh, but also a lot of work, but to, to find in a personal and a national story that flowed together so, so nicely. So yeah, I, I do hope readers learn, you know, a lot, a lot about Spain from what life was like before the Spanish civil war to you know the spanish civil war you know that was one of the at its time it was the i mean it was such an important 20th century event you know and obviously it was the precursor to the second world war but also people were passionately invested around the world in the outcome of the the spanish civil war and now it's really you know a distant memory except for maybe people who are especially interested in in history um so i think it's you know i think this book can make you know, give people a way to revisit and learn about that time, which is, I think, more relevant than it's been in a while in terms of the dueling forces of, of fascism and democracy. And you could think of, you know, people who are pushing for change versus people who are resistant to change. And and then how how art and free expression, what happens to, to that during times of political turmoil. So, you know, it, I didn't know, ex- I wasn't thinking about direct links between our present and, you know, the different time periods that the Pinedos lived through. But I know there is there are things to take away. So once you're done with this tour, are there plans of releasing the documentary on like a Blu-ray or something? 
I'm doing DVDs uh, of it. I am printing DVDs for right now. I'm just doing for universities and libraries, although I'm looking into the best way to, to do it so that people can more people can get their hands on it. I guess I'm, I'm really new. I know nothing about film distribution or models that, you know, will keep me from just losing tons of money. <laughs> um, so I'm trying to figure that out the best way you, you may know and can give me great advice, but I'm trying to figure out since people aren't really, you know, people don't really collect DVDs anymore. And, uh, there's not that many people who would want to own this, but also I didn't want to just like slap this up on, iTunes, you know, and then, and then see what happens. Aaron, I am so glad that we we're finally able to connect. And again, for folks that are listening, fascinating film and fascinating book. And I'm so glad that you turned me on to the movie. I never would have even heard of this film had it not been for you. Well, I'm, I'm glad you were so open to me reaching out to you, you know, out of, out of the blue. I think there's, it's a very small, but passionate group of people who will get what this is and like, and be able to relate it to, you know, to see, oh, this is uh, the Spanish Grey Gardens, you know, and I, I mean, I think that really is what it is. And, and for that's the way I've been explaining it to most uh, Americans to give them a, a, a comparison that's helpful. So where's the best place for people to keep up with you, your book, your tour, all this kind of stuff? Let's see. So I am on Twitter, AM Shulman, and I do post stuff about the book. My website is AaronShulman.com. And just for, for everyone to know, since this is a common mistake, it's S-H-U-L-M-A-N without a C, not S-C-H. Um, so, but yeah, hopefully, you know, you could, if you're interested in the book, you can, um, find it at your local bookstore or ask them for it, or it's on, you know, any retailer online and and you know i'm i'm just looking to you know spread the word about the paneros and el desencanto so if anyone's interested in organizing a screening or writing a review or, or you know posting about it that people should feel free to contact me my website has my uh email address and and i'm always excited when i get those those emails out of the blue which has been really really fun since the book has come out well thank you so much this was great mike thank you for having me this was such a pleasure Nuestro amor se estacionó en terreno prohibido de tal modo que ese amor ya no tiene sentido en aquello de sufrir me declaro campeón inventaste mi fracaso alejándote de la razón la cuenta clara ya saqué y esta vez mi amor cancela y deja fuera la infelicidad Hoy abriste sola para ti una rumba Por compañera tendrás verdadera
fracaso, Alejandro tenés la razón. La cuenta clara ya saqué y esta vecita, mi amor cancela y deja fuera la infelicidad. 